I'm Josh Davey. And I'm Alex Dunning. And we're the hosts of the Go Find Yourself podcast. A podcast created to inspire and unpack candid conversations with the best entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in their field right now. Powered by Cedars, we're the UK's number one online private equity marketplace, helping groundbreaking startups from around the world receive the funding they need to take their business to the next level. Stick around as we bring you weekly episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We really like it. Hello and welcome to episode four of Go Fund Yourself, the podcast brought to you by Cedars to talk all things entrepreneurship and investing. Today we have Anne Bowden, CEO and founder of Starling Bank. What are we saying about that, Alex? No, I mean, in terms of entrepreneurship and investing, this is a really fascinating story. You know, Starling, one of the powerhouses of European fintech, Anne has been the driver of that and a driving force behind the business as they picked up millions of customers and thousands of business customers and really been a force for change in shaping that fintech landscape. So super exciting to hear our entrepreneurship story and how she's built that unicorn from scratch and hear about all the trials and tribulations along the way. And don't forget, we are still running our monthly giveaway to be in with the chance of winning credit towards investing in a startup on the Cedars platform. All you need to do is leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and sign up to our website at cedars.com forward slash sign up. Um, or simply click the link in the description of the podcast if that is easier for you. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Anne Bowden, founder of Starling, coming right up. Great episode for you. Welcome to the podcast, um, Anne Bowden. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. Anne is the, the founder of Starling Bank. But I guess for, for people who are listening who aren't aware of what Starling is or who you are, can you just give us a sort of brief explanation of, well, I guess, what Starling is and, and who you are? Uh, well, Starling Bank's a new bank in the UK. Well, not that new now. We've been around for quite a few years. I started the company in 2014. But we have a very powerful retail banking business where um, we serve consumers and small businesses, SMEs. And we also got a B2B business where we provide payment services, virtual accounts, and a whole bank on an API for some of the largest banks in the world, as well as fintechs and government. Brilliant. Um, and what's your role within, within Starling? I suppose my role is to, is to set the vision and the mission and, and be the energy behind the organisation. Being CEO, founder of a bank, is a bit different from being a founder of another sort of organisation. We have very, very high expectations of us in terms of governance. And therefore, we have very formal boards and very, very formal committee structures. Um, so I have that part to play. I'm also, you know, spend a lot of my time speaking and talking to government and customers and out there, you know, talking on to the industry as a whole. And then what I really, really love is, you know, understanding the product and delivering the product and technology. I'm a computer scientist by training. I love tech. I've always loved tech. And that's why I am sort of spend my life trying to enable banking with the best powerful tech in the world. It'd be good to dive into that a little bit. So you had a long corporate career in, in banking before making that sort of dive into yeah. the startups world. So what was the, what was the rationale before taking, I mean, it's such a mammoth task to sort of create a bank from nothing and go from that very sort of different corporate world to the startup world? very interesting because I'd spent, you know, 30 odd years in, in traditional banking and I'd worked all around the world running big businesses in, you know, many countries, in very interesting countries. And the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009. 
And it was horrific. It was a huge shock to the industry, a huge shock to people working in the industry. And that was a wake-up call for me and a lot of other people as well. I was working in a very international business at the time. I was heading up a business that stretched across 34 countries in Europe and Central Eastern Europe. And at the end of that period of realisation that the world had gone into this big shock, I spent some time trying to understand what was going to happen next. And I was very interested in how the financial system was going to repair itself. I spent time in the States. I spent time at Harvard. I started talking to people about how we were going to do something really, really different. And at that point, I stepped away from my corporate job. And I spent a year in fintech. And I spent a year figuring out uh, and understanding how new companies were taking advantage of e-money licenses and new ways of doing things in order to, well, address some of the issues customers had with the financial services industry. I came across a couple of small companies then. I started working with GoCardless for a bit. And I realised that there was a whole world out there that was embracing new technology, embracing entrepreneurship. And I had to learn about it. And I spent some time in this world. And, but one day, somebody came knocking and said, did you want to go back into a banking environment and bring this fintech into the, into the big banks again? And I took a role as chief operating officer for Allied Irish Banks um, in 2012. And I brought some of those learnings from the fintech entrepreneurial world into AIB. And to be honest, I was very successful. You know, the organisation embraced it. We did a huge amount of change in a short period of time. And then I felt, what should I do next? What was the next step um, in the transformation of retail banking? And I went around the world talking to people. And I realised that everybody was trying to do the same sort of thing. Everybody was trying to transform their organisations. But it wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't going to be that impactful that it could change financial services forever. And I started dreaming about what if you could start from scratch? What if you actually could start from scratch and build a new bank in a new way, with a new way of engaging with customers. In January 2014, I quit my job to start a bank, and most people thought I was crazy. But it was a big step, uh, but I had to do it. How do you even make that first step when you say, <laughs> you say to me, I'm going to start a bank? Like, what, yeah. what does that process look like? What you have to remember is, in 2014, nobody was starting banks. There were one or two people thinking of the ideas out there, but nobody knew the names. I think if I'd said at that particular point in time I was going to start a bank the easy way, it, it would have been easier. But the, the vision was quite an audacious vision, to be honest, because I wanted to start a new bank with a full banking licence from day one in the toughest area of retail banking, doing current account banking, which is high regulatory hurdles. And I wanted to build the technology from scratch. I didn't want to go and buy a banking package. That was too easy. I wanted to do all of this from scratch and bring all the technology from Silicon Valley to banking for the first time. So in January 2014, I started knocking on doors around you know, the city, basically saying, I'm going to start a bank. It's going to look like this. It's going to change banking forever. And people are going to buy this new bank. And will you fund me? Uh, it wasn't an easy um, journey. So I think I'd, I'd love to come back to the, to the fundraising story in a, in a second. But I'd, I'd kind of just 
just to sort of set the scene a little bit before we do, look into that vision and look into what you're building. So I've, I previously uh, hear you describe Starling as, as the Amazon of, of banking, and that sort of elicits these ideas of, of suites of products and diversity of products. What exactly do you mean by that? I hate using the Amazon analogy because it, it, it seems grandiose and it seems rather sort of corny now, actually. But if I try to use the analogy in this way, Amazon sells its own products to customers. And we sell our own products, our own banking products to customers. Amazon sells other organizations, other firms' products through its infrastructure and through its marketplace. And we sell other financial services products through our marketplace. Our marketplace is full of a number of financial services products, whether it's a bit of mortgages or pension B for pensions or insurance products, general insurance products. Our marketplace is full of products that we offer to our customers through our marketplace. And that's where the analogy with Amazon uh, comes in. And then finally, Amazon built this infrastructure called AWS. Mm. And AWS facilitates the building of other businesses. It's an easy way to connect other businesses with an infrastructure, the best infrastructure in the market. And what we are doing is opening up our infrastructure, our technology, and our banking license to other businesses in order to create that ecosystem. So if on those three levels, you know, Amazon has its own products, Amazon has other people's products in their marketplace, Amazon has AWS, that's where the analogy comes in. So we have banking as a service, which is a SaaS service for banking, and other organizations build their businesses on our platform. Uh, for example, Raisin. Raisin uh, provide um, deposits, uh, optimization services uh, for consumers. Consumers can go on there and pick the best deposit solution from various banks. But if you go to open an account with Raisin, you get a Starling account because sitting behind that application is Starling and we have a whole suite of APIs that allow Raisin to actually take advantage of all the banking services. So I guess there's a there's a lot being talked about right now about sort of financial well-being and things like that. Is is that what you're trying to build um, for for the customer at the, at the end of the day, sort of a, a one-stop shop for you know your financial health, or is it is it something else? I think it, Starling operates on many different levels. I think coming out of the financial crisis and coming out of my experience of the financial services industry, I felt there was a better way to do it. I felt the traditional banks were all about cross-selling, upselling, and occasionally mis-selling, and that was fundamentally wrong. Um, You have to have a new way of engaging with customers. You have to have a new way of picking up the zeitgeist of what people are now all about. People have changed, and people expect more from their providers. People expect a trusting relationship and an organisation that has higher ethical standards. So Starling's all about that on one level. We also believe that financial health is terribly important. The most important thing is your own health, your family's health, and then your financial health. It can make a huge difference to your, your happiness, your health, whatever. 
And then I think the, the other fundamental issue is that banks sit on a huge, huge cost basis, are very, very difficult to, to change. And the technology was built many, many years ago. And we need to actually have better solutions, have a lower cost base, have new technology so that we can deliver these services to consumers and businesses at a lower cost. And because we have a lower cost base, we can share that benefit with our customers. So it's a couple of things going on here. It's new technology. It's something that's fresh and interesting. And above all, it's rising to the new standards that people set on the companies that serve them. Just on that as well, so it seems very much like being a fintech, you're more tech than than fin, and you touched on it slightly there, sort of the difference between maybe culture of, of yourselves and, and some of the legacy banks. And going back to the, the financial crash, how much do you think that sort of culture of banking at the time and culture of those companies played into the sort of really severe economic downturn? I think there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, the big banks, the legacy banks, are full of very good people trying to do a great job. And we shouldn't delude ourselves, you know, at the top level in all the big banks, they get digital, they want to do something about it. It's not a question of them not trying hard enough, they're trying very, very hard but they have a very, very difficult problem. It is difficult to crack that problem of taking a large organisation and turning that oil tanker to do something different. And what you find at the moment is there's a, if you look at the, the, the digital strategies of lots of the banks in the UK, they may have a flanker brand or a speedboat brand where they're trying to do something fast on the edge so that they can experiment in this new world. But turning that big oil tanker is very, very difficult. And I came to the conclusion that it was easier to start from scratch than try to change the old world. We, we are now seeing those challenger banks almost emerge from within the legacy banks. I think NatWest has recently announced, um, this, is, it, is it Bow or, or something similar to that? We're seeing RBS um, sort of put, put funds into up-and-coming up challenger banks as well. Other than the sort of sites, what, was, there, was there anything else behind the sort of lethargy of, of the banks? Was there a sense of them not believing in the hype? I think there's a couple of things going on in legacy banks that are worth explanation. These organisations are trying to change themselves. They do take digital very seriously, but changing is very, very difficult. Number one, it is very difficult to figure out how you're going to take the traditional legacy systems and migrate to something new. There's a lack of suitable products to migrate to. There are some banking packages that are big enough. But the biggest issue is that nobody wants to press the button to migrate from the old systems to the new systems. Because if you are the CIO, the chief information officer, who is responsible for pressing that button, It's a huge responsibility. In the current environment, the downside of getting it wrong is huge. The personal responsibility, and now under the senior management regime, um, the regime that sort of governs the, the, the senior management of banks, it is a very serious implication on you and your life if you get that migration wrong. So in that environment, people are retreating. And in response, they're they're actually coming up with flanker brands or speedboat brands so they can avoid that big migration. So given that, when you look at the competitive market, you're obviously going after sort of the personal banking uh, sphere, but also the business banking side. When you look at sort of the competition, is that the legacy banks or is it the the challenger banks that sort of come up at the same time as you? 
It's worth explaining some of the different players in the market. You have the big banks that actually dominate something like 80% of market share. You have the um, the second tier banks that have been around for a while. Um, you know, the, the banks that come out of the supermarkets, the banks that come out of the financial crisis where basically they've bolted organisations together. That second tier bank are not necessarily technology enabled banks. They're not entrepreneurial tech companies. Um, and they've been sitting at the same market share for some time. Then you had the new banks coming out from 2013 financial FSA, as it was, processes for new authorization processes. And those banks, the majority of those have gone into lending to SMEs or have gone into providing specialized services. Very few have actually produced current account banking. I think there's only two of us, and we are providing services which are quite difficult to deliver. So we've got off to the things that are really complex to deliver, and we're succeeding at that. But in that particular environment, the market and our target is to take market share from the big banks. We are a group of new banks that making it more acceptable for people to buy from new banks and together we're a force but our target market is to take market share from the big banks. And would you say that the greatest challenges to Starling's desire to, to take those those customers are coming from the legacy banks themselves or coming from the other challenger banks or coming from elsewhere? Mm, it's interesting um, I get often get asked the question is the real challenge there you know Big tech, mm. you know, sort of whilst you're concentrating on the on the RBSs and the and the HSBCs, is the real challenge Google and Facebook. And I think that you can look at this in several ways. Banking has not changed for 300 years. Okay, so it started off with people going into a branch, and then that same set of processes was moved to the the contact centre. You rang up and you asked some questions. Then it went to the web and then it went to the app. It's really the same thing being done through different channels. And the exciting things that big banks came up with was omni-channel. You could do all of that at the same time. But it's really taking the existing process and just changing the way you relate to it. Uh, PSD2, Payment Service Directive 2 in Europe, implemented as open banking in the UK and was all about what if you broke up that value chain? What if you had the back office, the core banking system, holding the balance separated from the distribution, the app, the web? And what if you joined them using an API? What would the world look like in that scenario? And I'm a big believer in the API economy. I think it's going to be very, very powerful, and it's about to come to banking. But in that world, you could have you know, your account with Barclays and use an HSBC app. You can mix and match banking. And in that scenario, could distribution move to the Googles and the Facebooks? You know, could, your, could your app disappear and become part of your social media um, application? Maybe. I often talk about the next stage of banking could be invisible banking. At the moment, what we do is we pay for something. We pay our uh, utility bill, we pay our insurance, we make payments of pounds or hundreds of pounds at certain points in the year. 
well, what if that happened all around you? What if you go into a store, you take things from the shelves, and each of those items is automatically taken off your bank balance as you take them off the shelves? What if you drive your car, and as you're going down the road, you pay for you know every sort of kilometre you travel from your bank account as, it, as you go? Mm. And what if you felt in your clothing whether you had enough money? I think we could do something really different. Banking hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Things could be very different in the future. And what if we have a situation where the value chain of banking breaks up and is joined together with APIs? What does that world look like? And, and that sounds very far off from where we are now, but how much of, sort of Starling's focus is on things like that? And, and you know, how far away from, from that scenario are we in your mind? I think that that could happen very quickly. You know, I think we could have a very different world you know, in the next five, ten years. At the moment, um, people need a basic level of function in order to do the day-to-day banking. And they need interesting features in order to switch banks. So what you have to do is to do both of those in unison in order to actually build the customer base. But with that, you can actually put things together in a whole new way. Um, we're doing a huge amount of work on artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we, we have some of the finest brains in the business working at Starling. And we are going to be, we're on a path to create those really, really different ways of doing banking. Just before we, we move on as well, you talked about having the finest uh, brains in the business. And I think a lot of the, the people we've interviewed as part of the series, especially when you're growing very quickly, hiring becomes the biggest issue. And I, how, how many employees are you at at the moment? Yeah, we have 400 people in London and we are soon to have another 150 in Southampton. So how difficult has hiring been and, you know, attracting those best minds as you've grown that quickly? I think that the important thing is that we are a, an organisation that's doing something interesting. We compete with big tech, with the big banks, you know, the entrepreneurial world, the talent. Uh, but we are an organisation that's doing something fundamentally that's useful. I think talent wants to work for organisations that are doing something that makes the world better. And we are making people's financial health better. Um, We're also an organisation that's full of like-minded people who are passionate about changing things for the better and working with great tech. So we have lots of people joining us from all sorts of industries that want to put the best tech and the best process and the best customer sort of relationship um, sort of expertise to work in building a bank like no other. And you mentioned the office in Southampton there. One of the things that we, we've come up against a, a lot in sort of the tech ecosystem in London is there is a sort of big disparity in in uptake, especially among financial services in London and and the rest of the country. Uh, do you see that at, at Starling? And is, does that, that office in Southampton come into that thinking at all? Starling is all about the whole of the UK. Uh, we are actually growing quicker outside London than in London. So we're embracing the whole of the UK. We want to take you know, the power of fintech, the power of new banking um, to all sorts of places in the UK, and we will be doing so in the next couple of years. And Southampton's the start of that. I'd like to just um, talk about sort of culture. Um, so I think there's a sort of sense of 
you get to 500 plus employees, uh, multiple offices. How do you maintain, and, and you're saying that people are joining starting because they want to create something. And I guess there's, there's sort of two questions here. How do you maintain a, a sort of level of culture um, when, you're, when you're that big? And then sort of going back to the time of the financial crisis and things, pre-2008, was the culture different in, in banking and, and how has it changed? I think culture is very important. The culture in Starling is that we don't believe in internal documents for the sake of internal documents. We're a regulated bank and governance is very important, but we don't do presentations with each other. Mm-hmm. The only things we do are things that are actually benefit the customer, because that is so, so important. We believe that we should align everybody to the vision and then loosely couple, let people get on with things. We believe in actually explaining the context of the world in which we work and then letting people get on with it. Uh, we're very much an engineering-led organisation. We are, you know, we don't use the judicial words that banks use of, or large corporations use of the business and IT. Engineering is a very, very important point, part of Starling and it's very much engineering-led. And if I compare the culture of Starling to the culture of organisations I've worked with in the past, I think that we all underestimate the power of individuals to influence the culture of even a large organisation. I believe that people make things happen, not process, and I've always believed that. And people who have worked for me in the past in big banks probably recognise things I did in the past in Starling Today. I think when I talk to people working in big banks about culture, I ask them to go back to their offices and change things and not to assume that they are powerless. I think leaders need to lead. And I think if they're leaders in big organisations and big banks feel that they are uh, cannot change the culture, then they are not trying hard enough. Those leaders can change the culture for the people that work for them and the people that work around them. Don't back away. Get in there and do your best to bring the culture that's a modern, enabling uh, culture to the people you work with. Yeah, and you, you talked about that as a, as a sort of a leader in, in the banking space, and you you are one of the the few sort of female banking CEOs. And um, Starling released the gender pay gap data, which I think said in the release that it, it's good, but some way to go. And as a sort of leader in the space, do you feel a sort of onus or responsibility to really push that gender pay equality in in tech debate further? I think that the whole gender pay gap issue is very difficult and it's down to people like me to speak up about it and say more and provide that leadership. But I think that we also need to understand the context that younger women early in their careers have. Uh, We expect an awful lot of women who are climbing the career ladder. Um, We expect them to be uh, great at their jobs, And like it or not, women are expected to achieve higher standards than men in order to get promoted. And we want them to be role models, and we want them to speak up, and we want them to, you know, to attend all the events and be the sponsor for female leadership in their organisations. That is very, very tough. And we need to recognise that 
because there are not many women in finance, there are not many women in tech, and there are not many women entrepreneurs. And if we take the women that are in that group, that are in mid-career, and expect them to do everything, then they will fail. And therefore, it's up to people like myself, who are at the other side of their career, to do all the talking, because otherwise it's unfair and the women coming through. Have you sort of supported the Women in Finance Charter? What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, we, we have signed up to the Women in Finance Charter. I have been uh, very involved in uh, the various initiatives. One of the things that we are very involved in in Starling is the Make Money Equal campaign, uh, which we have been leading. Uh, Make Money Equal um, is something that actually came from practically looking at men's magazines and women's magazines and coming to the realisation that women and men are talked to about money in very different ways. So we did a study, right, and you go through these, you know, these women's sort of books and it's all about scrimping and saving and saving for shoes and the trivia of money. And you go to the men's magazines, it's about, you know, investing in crypto, power suits and making big bets. We talk to men and women differently and it's causing different outcomes and it's actually self-perpetuating. So we're actually trying to influence the press to get them to talk to men men and women equally in the same sort of way about money. Because unless we do that, we get women who are you know, not earning so much, not investing so much, and are going to have poorer sort of pensions. And how conscious is Starling as an organisation when, when marketing and when speaking to consumers about, about that fact? Um, and, and how do you account for it? We are very careful because I'm very interested, to be honest. I passionately believe that we've got to have... It is extremely unfair that we have so many women retiring with you know, such low pensions that have not invested, that have not been prepared or haven't been given the pay rises and the promotions they deserve. We are a Starling feels very strongly about this. We take every opportunity of reminding people, but we can't take on every battle. But it is very, very important to us. So the future is bright. Yeah. I think maybe one thing that we touched on earlier that obviously is a sort of funding platform really interesting for, for us and our audience to talk about is that fundraising journey. And you talked about how difficult it was in the early days to, to go around. But could, could you talk us through that story and, and what your sort of fundraising history has been? I started Starling in 2014. It was very, very difficult to raise funding. The initial funding came from me. Now, I sold a house. But luckily, I was relatively well known in the industry. And a couple of big consultancy firms supported Starling on a contingent fee basis. So it took me two years to raise external funding. So two years of knocking on doors. But once I was prepared and was ready to submit the banking application, which took you two years, I raised a substantial seed round. I raised 48 million uh, from a single investor. And is there is there a story behind that? It's very unusual. We, we raised money from an individual who has been, who was very, very interested in what we were doing. We had a vision of using data to help consumers manage their financial lives. I felt passionately about the fact that banks had used data against customers. And what if you use data for customers? What if that data 
What, what if they owned their own data and they had the chance to use that data with the benefit of machine learning, artificial intelligence, to make their lives better? And somebody sort of noticed what I was saying about that and made a substantial investment. But it was somebody who really understood the vision and has been a great back of Starling. Uh, we've recently raised uh, another round from a institutional investor, Merion. So we have been very, very fortunate in that we've had great investors throughout the life of Starling. And I'm right in saying you've just been awarded a grant as well that came about as a result of the RBS and you used to work for RBS, am I right? And say so. Does that feel like it's sort of come full circle? It's probably worthwhile sort of explaining some of the background to that. RBS took government bailout funding, and as a result of that, made an agreement with the EU to divest various businesses as really a a punishment for taking government bailout. Um, and the agreement was made to divest a number of branches, and divesting branches means that you have to separate systems and separate systems in a bank is very very difficult especially old systems and they tried to do that for several years and they tried to divest that business as Williams Glynn Uh, and in the end they agreed that they would instead of doing all that divestment and all the separation of systems they'd put 700 million into a fund and this fund would be given out to competitors So instead of making us sell branches, we'll just give money into the fund and that fund will be used to give to competitors to compete against us. We were very fortunate to be awarded 100 million from that fund and that is a huge responsibility. Um, We've been awarded the 100 million in order to build a great bank for SMEs. SMEs get a rough deal. You know, they don't get a a great deal from their banks. And businesses that are growing, um, that need those services, find it very difficult having that relationship with a bank. So we are going to use that money to build a great SME bank. And it's a huge responsibility, which we've taken very, very seriously. It's very exciting because we have the opportunity to use all that technology skill we have and the money to really make a difference to small businesses in the UK. It's very exciting and it's a huge responsibility, which I take and all the team at Starling take very, very seriously. And I guess everyone has a bank account, so everyone knows what a personal banking relationship looks like. What are those nuances that that an SME faces? I think the first thing as an an entrepreneur, somebody starting a business, is actually getting a bank account and getting an appointment to see somebody at the local branch. And then there's horrible questions they ask you and, and you sit across somebody who is probably disinterested in your business. What we are doing is actually making it very, very easy to get an account. You can have a Starling business account in three minutes. Everything is automated. We link into companies' house and whatever. We offer through 11,500 post offices all over the country the opportunity to pay in cash. So you have cash takings. You can use our post office network. And above all, we provide all the services you need in a very 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 easy way and it's free we really listen to what customers want Uh, but this hundred million will allow us to build a number of features and functions that actually allow us to connect with those small businesses in a very very different way and that is part of our roadmap and it's very exciting and it's going to be tough because we have to deliver an awful lot we're very excited about changing the face of SME banking for the UK, uh, and we hope that we'll be the world leaders.
So looking at that strategically, while not a sort of direct competitor in the sense of it being a current account, you've got Revolut, which sort of just went out and did everything sort of all at once in terms of international location, whereas you took the decision to consolidate the UK. And then, you know, now we're sort of talking about Europe a few years on. Why was that decision um, one that you made? And why was it important to consolidate at home before going abroad? I think there's a couple of things that differentiate us from the non-bank providers. Uh, First of all, we believe that you have to be a bank and you have to have the best technology and you have to have the best infrastructure. And we decided to become a bank before we launched anything. Uh, And we decided to build that technology before we launched. But I could do that because I had a solid seed funder and it was the option we took. And that gives us a great foundation in order to provide services. It also means that we're on the path through profitability uh, because being a bank we can take in deposits and those deposits are guaranteed by the financial services um, compensation scheme up to 85,000 and we can lend those out. That is how we make money. Therefore, um, we are on a path to profitability and that means we have more things under our control. We just don't need to just go for just for growth. We can go for providing the right services to the right customers at a great price. Well, yeah, I'm, what's there left to say is um, thanks so much for coming in talking to us about the future of banking. Uh, it's really exciting. Can't wait to see what's next for Starlink. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, you can find out more about our guests in the podcast description or online at cedars.com forward slash go fund yourself. But you can also find this episode's transcript and other exclusive content. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you want to invest in some of the best and brightest startups in Europe, sign up at cedars.com forward slash sign up. See you next week. <laughs>